All right. So for those of you who, who didn't realize that the marathon is going on today, so well done. Those of you who found your way and I know that many of you were tempted to start to run in the marathon when you found out. Instead, you decided to come and have donuts. So, you know, it'll feel far less painful for you tomorrow, for those of you who chose to come be with us. Um, we are two weeks removed from Easter. And as I was thinking about it this weekend, it's kind of funny how we, when we think about Easter, and particularly when we think about the cross, the number one thing we think about is that that, that dealt with our sin. We tend to focus on our, on, oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Charlie. We tend to focus on our sin. And let's not, let, let's be honest. Because Jesus is willing to die for us, our sin has been dealt with. But that wasn't the only reason that Jesus came and took on flesh. That wasn't the only reason for the cross. That wasn't the only reason for Easter. That was simply a means to an end because God's desire was to reestablish the world the way he intended it when he first made it. To recreate creation the way he always intended it. And toward that end, he needed to do two things. He needed to restore us back to the relationship that his image bearers, we, were created in. To be with him. And he, need to, he needed to restore us back to the purpose for which he originally created. Namely, to represent him within the world, that we would be his co-laborers and moving the world forward, creating a more garden-like world. But of course, we had already kind of played our hand back in, in, in the garden um, when, when we kind of showed humanity's propensity to take matters into our own hands, to do it ourselves, to run to pseudo-saviors, things like that fruit, or we've, we you know, run to money, we run to relationships, we run to kind of you name it, to try to make ourselves secure. And he was saying, no, 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 you will, you will be constantly running after things until you can rest in me. And so how does a loving creator help his image bearers who already have hearts that are prone to wander remain anchored in him? And how does he help them reflect his heart when we have a propensity to reflect our own dysfunctionality? And so Jesus simply dying wasn't enough. Just dealing with our sins, giving us a spiritual bath was not enough. That was a means to an end. And that's why when we accept the gift that Jesus bought on the cross for us, that gift of grace, he not only gives us grace, but he also gives us his spirit to reside within us. It's funny that within the church, we often talk about accepting Jesus into your heart. Anybody ever heard that terminology? Any, anybody here kind of done that? Jesus come into my heart. The image that we tend to have in our mind is of a little like, copy of Jesus sitting down in the throne of our heart, right? It's, and it, it, it seems a little bit silly, perhaps, to an outsider. When we're praying for Jesus to come into our heart, what we're really praying for is the same spirit that empowered Jesus throughout his earthly ministry to come into our hearts and empower us. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave to come into our lives and breathe new life into us. The same spirit that empowered the disciples to go and share the gospel, even though in some cases it cost them their life. That spirit is given to you and to me. 
And it is the, the down payment, the first fruits of our eternal relationship with God because it is truly God with us. It was interesting when we were in Israel and um, the tour guide, as we were walking through the Western Wall, there's some tunnels as we walk through there. And the guide says, the reason why the Western Wall in Jerusalem is the most holy place, some of you know it as the Wailing Wall or the West, where, the, where Jews will go to pray. The reason why it is the most holy place in all of Judaism is because this is the closest they can get to where the Holy of Holies sat. It is the closest they can get to where God's Holy Spirit resides. And I was thinking to myself, no. The whole, we, we brought the Holy Spirit with us. Every single, the, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. You don't have to come to some, some wall that just was a retaining wall to be close to God's Spirit. God has chosen to give us His Spirit. And last week we looked at one of the implications of the Spirit being given to us. It's a huge one. In, in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, Paul makes the statement that because the Holy Spirit is within us, That spirit has brought about our adoption to sonship, that we don't have to approach God with fear and trepidation as a slave that has let their master down. We can approach God as our father. We can call him Abba, Daddy, the most intimate name of God found in Scripture, because for all intents and purposes, he is our father. We've been adopted into his family and... If you didn't hear last week, I encourage you to listen online. But here is the most important part. We are completely and utterly secure in our new identity as sons and daughters of God. Once adopted, we cannot be unadopted. And that is good news. But it's not the only effect of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Because what, what it means that we are adopted, it means that every single man, woman, or child... Throughout history that has given their hearts to Jesus Christ, that has accepted the gift that Jesus, that gift of grace that Jesus purchased on the cross, every single man, woman, and child who has been, you know, infilled with the Holy Spirit is our spiritual sibling. There's one church. Although we may meet in hundreds of thousands of different places around this planet, there have been already gatherings of the church that the body of Christ For, you know, the last 20 some odd hours, because it's been going on around the globe, there are people meeting concurrently around this world, but we are all part of one church. Sadly, however, we don't always act like it. We act somewhat dysfunctional. I think about the ways that Jesus uh, told his disciples, the world will know you're my disciples by, by what? By the way we love one another. And then I look at some of the ways that we within the church interact with one another. The ways that we sit in judgment upon one another. We tend to compare ourselves to other people as if God grades on a curve. So all we need to do is just be better than them and we're good. Right? Or we look at people and the things that they struggle with. And because they're different things than we struggle with, we judge them far more harshly than we look at our own faults and our failings. We give ourselves grace. We give them plenty of judgment. Or we we use prayer as an excuse to gossip. Or we get in ridiculous theological arguments that, that amount to nothing more than infighting within the family on social media. And so as people are looking, they're going, dude, they're more dysfunctional than my own family. Why on earth would I ever want to be part of that family, right? 
the problem I think that we run into is that within the church, we almost come in with this mindset that if we are all in Christ, then we must all look and talk and think the same, that we must all value the same things. And when people value things differently or people worship differently than we do, they're automatically wrong and we're automatically right when we disagree. God had to work some of that out with me when I was in Israel the first time because I recognized I was surrounded with people who approach God very differently than I do. And as a, at that point, as a 25-year-old Anglo-Saxon Protestant Westerner, I was looking at people in, within a culture that had been worshiping God far longer than I or my ancestors had ever been alive. And I was judging them that anywhere that I disagreed with them, I, they were categorically wrong and I was categorically right, which is, is pretty arrogant if you think about it. And so how do we as the church, how do we as the body of Christ remain unified when we have so many differences? And in fact, are our differences okay? Because I think in some ways we think that they're not okay, that we shouldn't be different, that our unity equals uniformity. But that's not the case. In fact, when one of Jesus' last prayers in John 17, it was when he was in the upper room with his disciples, right before he's arrested and crucified. Jesus begins by praying for his disciples, and then he begins to pray for those who will come to faith because of their their testimony. And this is ultimately what he prays. He says that, I pray, Father, that they would be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, our unity will be a testimony to the world that we really are God's kids. And he really is God. But what I want you to notice is in that prayer, he prays for unity, but he never prays for uniformity. And in fact, what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that our differences are not a weakness of the church. They do not have to be debilitating. In fact, our weakness, our, our, our differences are actually our strength. And this is something that, that Paul recognizes. He recognizes that the, the distinctions, the, the differences, the different views of how we approach the world, the different ways that we talk, the different ways that we think, the different things that we value and care about, the different things that we kind of express our faith in actually are beneficial. That our, our unity within our distinctiveness is actually a far greater testimony to the power of God than us all looking the same thinking the same, talking the same, and just doing life together. But the fact that people who are very different, who even vote differently, can get along, it's a big deal, right? And so it has more to do with simply our witness that it actually, that our differences are actually a part of the way that the body of Christ is built up and strengthened. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to camp there this morning. Yes, sir. There's a Chevy Traverse parked in front of the driveway of one of the homeowners. So okay. to get towed. Aha. If you have a Chevy Traverse parked in front of, thank you. Looks like we're moving it. Awesome. 
we love our neighbors. Sometimes they get a little picky about where we park. So, by the way, let's just use this as an opportunity to say, in, out of respect to our neighbors, we have a pretty big parking lot. If on Sundays you would make endeavor to park in the parking lot, it would really help us in our relationships with them. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, um, Paul is writing to a church that's based in a very melting pot society. Corinth was a port city. It was a really big city where people were coming from all over the known world and doing life together. And, and there were total differences there. And they had to try to figure out how to interact and get along. And within the church, they were experiencing those same things because you had people who came from a Jewish background trying to worship alongside people who came from a Gentile background. Not only that, you had people, you had slave owners who were trying to worship alongside their slaves. You had wives and their husbands, children and their parents, all trying to worship together and going, how do we do this? How does this work out? And so the, the Corinthians, knowing that Paul was kind of a father of their church, had helped plant it, they write a letter to him asking him some questions, asking him for some clarification. Paul responds with a letter which we call 1 Corinthians. Now, we don't have the original letter that they wrote to Paul. We don't know exactly what they were asking. All we have is his response. But theologians have been able to kind of read between the lines of how Paul responds to infer that one of the things that was going on within the church is that these early Christians were were recognizing the way that the Holy Spirit gifted people, that there were certain ways that the Spirit was moving in their midst. And they began to say, oh, this right here, this particular gift, if it's exhibited, shows that that person really is being led by the Holy Spirit. And so they begin to elevate that within the church. And that became kind of a, a major sign. For them, it seems that speaking in tongues, and I'm not talking about speaking in a different language like on the day of Pentecost. I'm talking more kind of allowing the Holy Spirit to guide your tongue. And you just start saying something you don't even understand what you're saying, but it's an act of worship. And that, that was somehow more powerful testimony that the Holy Spirit was in you than anything else. And so it began to be elevated above other gifts. And Paul is responding, saying, wait a minute, guys. You're, you're trying to make a hierarchy where there isn't a hierarchy, where you're trying to elevate certain things and, and push other things to the background. And I just want you to recognize that it's all important. And so that's how he, that is what he's speaking to when he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's begin with verse 4. He says, there are different kinds of gifts. The word in Greek is charisma or charismata. It just means a gifting. Uh, Charis is also the way we we get grace. So grace and gifting are the same word, right? This is all coming from the spirit. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He still gives it to us. So there are different kinds of charisma or, or gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, in, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, each one, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of that same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that same Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. And to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. 
All these are the work of the one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Let's pause there. I hope as we're talking through this, you're beginning to see a theme that Paul is hammering on. When you notice somebody who's writing, keep repeating the same theme over and over. Pay attention because that's kind of their thesis. And his point here is pretty simple. There is one spirit, one source of empowerment. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit empowers every single person in exactly the same way. Because he distributes his empowerment, he distributes gifts in a myriad of different ways. So we express the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives in a lot of different ways. And he goes off, he kind of identifies nine of them in this section. But one of the things I really want you to recognize and I want to point out is that this list that he gives us here in 1 Corinthians 12 is not exhaustive. Nor is it intended to be seen as a hierarchy or even as something where we say, well, that's all the spiritual gifts that there are. Because in other letters, Paul gives completely different lists and there's almost no crossover, which means that there's just a whole lot. He's just giving a sample set of them. And notice what comes last in this sample set that he gives. Speaking in tongues and, 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 you know, kind of a translation or an interpretation of those tongues. So he's saying it's just one of many gifts. And by the way, as you look at a lot of the other lists that he gives, one of the things that we recognize is that not every spiritual gift looks all that spiritual, right? It's one thing to say, well, this person has the gift of healing. When they pray over somebody, that person is physically healed. That could only happen because the Holy Spirit moves, right? That's a miracle, or this person had a prophetic word, meaning they, they spoke the words of God that God had kind of put in their heart and they just uttered it. Or, or this person knew something about me that they could never have known because they don't know me. And it was like they were reading my mail, right? That came straight from the Holy Spirit. Or this person was able to interpret the, 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 what felt like babbling, that person was speaking tongues and this person was able to interpret it. That could only come from the Holy Spirit, okay? So those things we would call spiritual But in other lists, here are some of the things that he identifies as spiritual gifts. Serving. There's a lot of you, a lot of you that serve. Hey, can I help carry that box for you? Spiritual gift. How about hospitality? Anybody ever been over to the Winnikies and seen the way that Diane just kind of cares for you? And and there's a lot of you who have this gift of hospitality. That is a spiritual gift. Or how about the gift of giving financially we we just heard and and we all you know give in some capacity but there are some just like what don and jill were saying where they recognize don and jill you guys are like the called to missions boots on the ground we aren't called to that but we have been blessed financially and so this is our way of helping to spur on the kingdom of god so we want to make this happen that is an over and above amazing gift. And there are some people who are really called to do that. Others, providing leadership. Okay, just the ability to lead. There are people in here who lead all over the place. You have this natural propensity when you just kind of see a need, you see where you need to go and you can help bring people along. 
If you, if some of you don't have that gift, you start going, we got to go this way. You look behind you and there's nobody there. You're just going on a walk by yourself, right? But there are some of you, you go, this is where we need to go. And you look behind you and there's tons of people following because it's just a natural innate gift. Showing mercy. Got a 10 and a seven year old. We are working very hard on them learning how to show mercy. It starts with their parents learning how to show mercy to them and their imperfections, right? So some of you have this ability to just, you care for somebody and it breaks your heart. You have compassion on them, which causes you to move towards them. Now, all of us hopefully can be merciful, but there are some people, even one, one of them in the list that Paul gives us in first Corinthians is faith. Remember, our relationship with God all begins with faith. When we're talking faith there, it's an over and above kind of faith that just says, I don't see the the answer. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know he's going to be there. So I'm running to take that hill and just kind of you go through life in faith. There are people. I, I met a guy in Israel the first time, and this is where God really broke me. This is totally not in my notes, but it was a powerful moment when I was beginning to feel really arrogant about man. The way that these people are worshiping God, the iconography. I was actually standing in um, one of the most holy Christian sites. It's called the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus' body was supposedly crucified, laid on the ground. They wrapped him up. And then the tomb is also where they suggest that the tomb that his body was laid in is just over there as well. And there's this massive church and tons of gold. And, and it's just it just felt overwhelming. And it just felt gaudy. It almost was like... No, I'm not going to say that. Uh, it, just, it just felt difficult to worship in there. And I had a bad attitude. And suddenly I looked over and there was a guy that looked like he was dressed like Jesus. And I kind of wrote him off initially. He had a, a robe on, no shoes on his feet, long hair. Somehow we found ourselves in a conversation. It turned out he was a Franciscan monk. Um, he, he had taken a vow of poverty. And he trusted God to provide everything. Talk about faith, Right. He said, you know, I I was in Portugal about a week and a half ago, and I felt like the Holy Spirit say it's time to go to Jerusalem. So I went to the airport. Somebody bought me a ticket. Here I am. This morning I I stayed over at this, um, you know, church, and then I've been having all of my meals are provided right now by this convent. They've invited me to come in and eat, and I just trust God. I go, my gosh, this is amazing. And I tried to give him money. He goes, oh, I don't touch money. I don't ever, I, I don't touch any money. God just provides that's literally how he lives. That's, that's more faith than I've got. I'm telling you. I don't live with that kind of faith. I'm the kind of guy who wants to see God move. I want to be like the Israelites walking through the wilderness and seeing God provide manna in the morning and quail at night. But I want to know I got some power bars in the back of my tent. Got to have that granola bar just in case the manna's not there in the morning. That's my anemic faith. There are people with far greater faith than us, than me. There are some of you in here who have far stronger faith than I, and that is a gift. That as you begin to exhibit it, that is from the Holy Spirit. So there is one spirit, one source of empowerment, but he empowers us in radically different ways. It looks very different from all of us, for, for all of us, for each of us, and how we begin to live it out might look different as well. And that is okay. In fact, it's imperative. But there's also one unified purpose, one primary overarching purpose for our gifts. And it is not to make our own name great or to build up our kingdom. Paul explains the purpose of those gifts in verse 7. Go ahead and look there with me. He says, now to each one 
the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? The common good. Not for yourself, but for one another. And if that wasn't overt enough, two chapters later, as he's still in this conversation, he says this in in chapter 14, verse 12. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Since you're eager to experience the gift of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself through you, then look, pray for those, those gifts that enable you to help build up the church. And by the way, I am not talking about a building. If you've been here any length of time, hopefully by now you know the church is not a building. This is just the box we gather in. We are the church. We are the temples that the God's spirit resides in. And wherever we go, that's where the church is. Which means we get to be the church, not just on Sundays between 10 and 1130 in the morning. We get to be the church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The church goes to 24-hour fitness. The church, you know, shops at Ralph's or Vaughn's. The church drinks Starbucks or Pete's or Dietrich's or, or tea. For those of you who are into that kind of thing, right? The church is everywhere and that's the point. Far too often we're like the salt that wants to get stuck here in the salt shaker and just kind of hide out. And it's like, no, 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 no. The purpose of salt is to go season. Or we're like light that wants to stay in the light bulb. And it's like, no, the purpose of light is to shine in the darkness. And what Paul is saying is that we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are gifted. Probably looks a little bit different than one another. And now he's going to go into the importance of the the diversity of our gifts and the ways that it plays itself out. Let's keep reading back in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. He uses a metaphor to describe the church. He uses this metaphor of a body that is made up of many, many parts, but ultimately forms one unified body. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It wouldn't for that reason stop to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't really belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Because if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all the same part, Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, well, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, well, I don't need you. On the contrary, those those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They're imperative. They're important. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. We wear clothes to cover them up. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, right? But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, 
but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. This is Paul's favorite metaphor for the church, by the way. He comes back to it again and again, 24 times in his various letters. He refers to the church as the body of Christ. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's a beautiful metaphor for what we are as the church. Think about your body for just a second. I mean, you have 206 bones in your body. Even more when you're a kid, but then your head kind of fuses itself together, right? So you've got 206 bones in your body. And all of those are held together by ligaments. Without those ligaments, dislocations are happening all the time. You've got over 600 muscles that support the 79 organs. And every single muscle and every single organ plays a very unique part. My guess is... Other than certain parts that you use all the time, the majority of your body parts you don't think at all about until they stop working, right? Until they stop doing exactly what they were designed to do. Up until a month and a half ago, I didn't even know that I had a part of my body called a plantar fascia. (laughs) Then I developed plantar fasciitis. It's basically a straining of the muscle right on the heel of your foot. Those of you who have experienced it, those of you who have it, know it's no fun, And when one part of your body suffers, the whole body suffers, right? Up until a month and a half ago, if somebody said plantar fasciitis, I say, what does, you know, Mr. Peanut have to do with fascism? Like, what is a communist Mr. Peanut? I don't know. That makes sense to me. But all of a sudden, I know it because it's not working the way it was originally designed. You have different parts of your body in every single one matters. Even the parts that you wish sometimes didn't work. Think, take your nervous system, for instance. You have nerve endings in your body. Sometimes we wish our nerve endings weren't quite so sensitive, don't we? That they didn't tell us that we were experiencing pain quite as acutely as they do. And yet, take for a moment, what if you removed the nervous system from your body? What would happen? It would be tantamount to you having leprosy over your entire body because the truly damaging thing about leprosy is that when your nerve endings die, you no longer feel pain and all of a sudden you start hurting yourself constantly and you don't even know it. We need every part of our body. You know, sometimes you have the, what is it? Some of you have had the appendix removed and stuff. We still don't have a clue. We'll probably one day go, oh, that was a really important part, but we don't have a clue, right? That's the only part we know of. Some of you are going, well, yeah, you don't really need hair. That's true too. (laughs) But but it's nice to have when you have it, right? Our body parts. (laughs) Charlie, I'm not, I didn't even look at you. What are you doing, man? (laughs) You still have it. It's just migrated south for the winter. Uh huh. It's hiding out. So we have different body parts. All of them are important. All of them form one unified body. And in the same way, we as a church, as the body of Christ, look very different from one another, play very different roles. And yet it is imperative that we have one another. 
Jeff and I have both been gifted with the, the, the love and the passion to shepherd other people, which is what a pastor is, is a shepherd, somebody who comes alongside. We, we have the gift of teaching, so we get to expo- express that in the church. But holy moly, what we don't have is the gift of administration. Our right side of our brain is really good. Our left side of our brain is anemic. Thankfully, God has brought people like Jeannie and Robin to our church to help us think administratively. It's not my strength. It's not Jeff's strength, but it's certainly their strength. And our church benefits because they use their giftings in that way. Or or take the the worship team that you saw up here this morning. Not all of them can carry a note, right? Not all of them can, can, can sing a tune. Thankfully, some of them can. Not all of them can play every instrument, but they can play their instruments they've been assigned very, very well. Some of them even have rhythm. Miss that one. But even them, they in and of themselves need the people up there that cannot carry a note and have no sense of rhythm but understand technology, right? Because without the audio-visual team, either they would lose their voice from trying to yell, you wouldn't be able to hear their ability to play, or we wouldn't know the words to sing with them, and so all of a sudden all they're doing is putting on a concert for us. They need one another, and thankfully, they've got one another. I take our, our, our welcome team. I love the fact that on Sundays, I can be preparing for the message, and I can kind of be interacting with people in here. And I know that you guys are being cared for out there because they are doing what God has made them to do on Sunday mornings. They, they're, they're just fulfilling that. And by the way, we're just talking about inside the church. And I think about all the ways that there are so many ridiculous gifts in this room. Some of them don't seem all that spiritual, Right? I think about those of you who are able to work with your hands and are constantly caring not only for the church, it looks, you know, that you guys fix what I break. I've got the spiritual gift of deconstruction. I'm grateful that God has brought some people who have the spiritual gift of reconstruction. But in people's homes, I think about Tony Pekka and, and Nassim Manashi and, and Byron Winicky, to name just a couple. You know, Greg Wengler, Gene Getz, people who know how to work with their hands and they do it, not just here, but in other people's homes. Speaking of, of, of Tony Pekka, by the way, just to let you know, had a heart attack earlier this week, four stints in one vein to open it back up. He's having quadruple bypass surgery on Monday in order to open up another and so this man who ministers with his hands, this man who ministers at, at the um, dementia and Alzheimer's home every Sunday, who gives so much of himself, is dependent upon some of you who have studied medicine or who's going to go under the knife. And I'm so grateful that God has called some to be doctors, some to be nurses who can actually offer bedside manners, right? And, and, and care. I'm so grateful God has called some to be chaplains to come alongside those. Some have called, some, God may call some of you even to be the kind of people without any medical experience to just go and show up at the hospital or go and show up at, at the recovery home or go and show up at an Alzheimer's home and just say, I want to sit with you. I want to be with you. I want to care for you or perhaps care for your family. I'm so grateful that God calls some to be teachers and pour into our kids to partner with us in raising them and training them up. So much of that has less to do with information download as just helping them learn how to be civilized human beings who can care for other people. That is a huge endeavor. And I'm so grateful for those who have said yes to that. 
And that's just, this is just a smattering of the ways that you use the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ and to care for other people. We desperately, desperately need one another. And our strength lies not in our being exactly alike, but our strength actually lies in our diversity. It is a strength of ours. Now, the irony is our human tendency is to want to gravitate towards people who are just like us. We want to be surrounded with people who think like us, oftentimes who look like us, though we would never vocalize that who um, listen to the same music we listen to, who watch the same news programs or television shows that we do, who vote the same as us. I mean, these are the ways that we tend to want to separate ourselves out. And you look at the church, and unfortunately, for a church that Jesus prayed that the world would know that we are his disciples by our unity, by our being together, it has become fractured over ridiculous things, over worship styles. You know, even within our own little church, if some of us think, man, worship this morning was was pretty loud, like it kind of hurts my ears and others are going, man, I wish worship were a little bit louder. All right. Some of some of us are going, man, I, I would really like to have some newer music played. And others are saying, man, can we just get back to the hymns? That's where the real power is at. And yet we can, when we are able to do life together and worship together, that's a powerful testimony that the Holy Spirit is in us and that he unifies us in, in spite of our diversity. And we celebrate, in a lot of ways, our, our differences. But our tendency as human beings is to say, I want to be with people just like me. And so the hands who like to work tend to gravitate with all the other hands. And they go to a church that's all about social justice and caring for the tangible needs. And other people, that the, the eyes that just like to look for what God is doing and celebrate it, want to gather with other eyes. And the ears who just want to listen for God's word gather with other ears. And the tongues who just want to pray, gather with other tongues. And the evangelists, let's say that they're the feet, who just want to run to people who don't know, want to gather with other feet. And what happens is the church, you know, the body of Christ becomes segregated. I mean, what do you call a room full of ears? Gross, right? That's just Gross. And yet that's what we want to do. We want to gather. And the reality is, if you are gathering, if you're a hand and you find yourself surrounded by a whole bunch of other hands, chances are you are going to work, work, work. You're going to be serving all the time. And if you are a tongue that just wants to worship God, that's all you want to do. And worship is the most important thing. Then you're, and you gather with other people that that's all they care about. You're going to worship really well. And if you're the kind of person who is a prayer warrior and you just surround yourself with other prayer warriors, chances are you will be interceding and praying ceaselessly. But what happens is we begin to get polarized. And, and, and sometimes those who are over here being the hands and the feet and working need to remember that sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is get on our knees and pray. And those of us who are constantly praying for the needs, sometimes we need to be reminded that we need to celebrate what God has already done in our midst in worship. And sometimes those of us who are worshiping with our song need to be reminded that that's not the only form of worship. 
that our, our giving is a form of worship and our serving is a form of worship and even us being honest with God about the brokenness we see around us and the sorrow that we feel, that is an act of worship. We need one another in the same way that my arm desperately needs a bicep and a tricep. When we're younger and we're guys and we tend to focus, oh, i got to get this thing as big as possible, and we focus only on our bicep and we forget that the tricep is just as important. Because if, if I only had a bicep and I didn't have a tricep that pulls against the bicep, I would go through life like this. And in fact, my bicep would actually suffer, it would become emaciated because I need something to pull against it, to balance it out. If you look at your body and you spend any time studying your physiology, you'll begin to recognize that our body is actually has a lot of things that counteract one another because we need People to pull against is actually you need counterweights, countermeasures to help keep you centered. There's a reason why our founding fathers knew that we needed a balance of power where no, no one entity had all the power because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so they built into it the, what we would consider dysfunction today because, because at the end of the day, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the, I'm sorry to even use those languages, it's almost bad words in our culture, but we need some sort of tension to help us stay centered. We need one another. And within the church, we need people who see the world differently than we do and have different values than we do. It's so interesting when I read people who are very strong evangelists or I listen to people who are very strong evangelists that basically say, you must be an evangelist and here's what it looks like and you have to sell everything and go. And it's like, well, I'm so glad that you have been willing to trust God and follow God and what he's called you to do, but he doesn't call every single person to do exactly the same as you. We need one another. Sometimes we have people who are called to missions. And sometimes we have people who are called to support those missionaries. So my point this morning is we are stronger together. We are stronger because of our differences as opposed to being stronger in spite of them. And there's some of you who are going, well, I see that. I'm really glad that there are some people in our church. And I know I've just scratched the surface. There are so many of you as I look around here, I go, I'm so grateful that we have people who have engineering minds. Not only because they can help look over some of the, the architectural stuff we're doing and saying, well, is the, is the building going to fall down? But also because, you know, Marley helps make sure that we can actually drive on our streets because she's thinking 10, 20 years out. Russell trying to help us be able to have bike lanes that we don't get killed in and, and help, you know, I, I appreciate people who are built differently than me. Because I'm stronger because they're in my life. I have eight people right now that every Monday after I finish writing a message, I send the message to them. And they represent a whole different kind of slew of people in our church. And it's so interesting the feedback I get because some, from some I get one perspective and from others I get another perspective and from a third I get, you know, eight people I get about 12 different perspectives back. And I need them because it helps me to recognize I'm not speaking to one person who thinks exactly like me. I'm speaking to a room full of people who think exactly like them. We need one another. We're stronger because of one another. And I'm so grateful for those of you who are using your giftings that God has given to you to build up his church and to glorify him. But I would imagine, and this is my last point, so I'll invite the worship team to come forward. I would imagine that there are some of us in here this morning 
who are going, I'm glad that they know what God has called them to do. They recognize their giftings, but I must have missed that day when the Spirit was handing out, you know, spiritual giftings. I missed that day because I don't, I, I got nothing. And I would suggest to you that if you have the Spirit of God residing in you, you have more gifts than you recognize. You just may not recognize it as a gift, or you may not be utilizing it to help care for and build up the body of Christ and to care for other people. And that is precisely the reason why we're doing this thing called the missional pathway, which I know you're tired of hearing about. But I'm not tired of talking about it because this is our way of helping you recognize how God has uniquely designed you and what he is calling you to give your life to, at least in this season of your life. The missional pathway is our way of helping you get out of the seat and onto the field, even if it never results in you serving a single minute at this church. I don't care. Because so long as you are serving, so long as you are shining, so long as you are being the salt that God has made you to be, we benefit. The body of Christ benefits and the kingdom of God benefits for his glory. That is our goal. That is our job as a church. So this morning, I just want to say, if you are not yet signed up for the missional pathway and you have not yet gone through it, we're doing two rounds of it. We've already done the first round and about 60 people at this point have gone through it. The second round, the second kind of iteration of this begins this Friday at 6 p.m., If you can give me this weekend, if you can give me Friday from 6 to 9 and you can give me most of your Saturday, I guarantee you that we will make great strides in helping you recognize how God has uniquely designed you and what he is calling you to give yourself to. If you have children, we recognize how important it is to make sure they're cared for. We will watch them for you. We will provide child care so you can be there. I don't want you to worry about finances. If finances, it's cost $25 for all of the materials. If that's an, an impediment for you, forget it. I'll pay it for you so you can come. That's how much we care that you go through this because this is our big rock for the year. Helping equip and then point you in the direction that God is calling and then saying, you got this. That's what we're about as a church. That's what we were called to be as a church is to equip you to be the disciples and the ambassadors of hope that God has called you to be. And so in order to sign up for it, all you need to do on your connection card in the front of the seat back in front of you is just write missional pathway and your contact information, and we will secure a spot for you this this Friday night. Now let me just pray for us. Let me just thank God for using imperfect vessels like us to represent him. Father God, we love you. We're so grateful that you did not just design us to be independent. You made us to do life with you and you made us to do life with one another. We recognize how messy it is. We recognize how often we compare ourselves to one another. We pray, Father God, that you would help us to be the part of the body that you have called us to be so that our whole church community benefits. And we invite you to help yourself to our lives to do whatever it is that you want to do to bring glory to yourself. I pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey, we're going to, we're going to,